My subject has been entitled The Power of Praise from Jeremiah 20 and verse 13. And when I looked at that verse again, I noticed that it's like an island of praise in the midst of a sea of discouragement. And I thought to myself, you know, why is this verse here? And so it wouldn't be good to take this verse out of that context. It's more powerful if it's used in the context and understood the way Jeremiah meant it to be understood. There is power in praise. And we need praise in our congregations. We need praise in our own lives. There's a little boy who lived back in the 1800s who lived on a farm. And he had heard that the circus was coming to town. And he had never been to a circus. And so he asked his father, he said, Dad, can I go to the circus? And his father said, you can go if you get your chores done. And so he got up early that Saturday morning, did his chores, went to his father and said, Dad, I need some money to go to the circus. And so his dad reached into his overalls and he pulled out a dollar bill and gave it to that boy. And that was the most money he had ever had in his hand at one time. And he was excited. So he made his way to town. And as he approached Main Street, he saw the crowd gathering there on the street. And so he found himself a good place to watch the parade. And as the parade came by, there was the marching band. There was the elephant, which he had never seen before. There were all those caged animals. And then bringing up the end of the parade was the clown. And he was really excited when he saw that clown coming by. He was so excited, he ran out into the street, pulled out that dollar bill, and gave it to the clown. He turned around and went home. He thought he had seen the circus when he only saw the parade. And brethren, I'm concerned that little boy's experience is way too often can be compared to our worship services in our congregations. When we gather as the church, we may intend to worship, but all we experience is the parade. Oh, we have the parade of songs, and we're mouthing the words, but we're not thinking about what they mean. We hear prayers, and too often the prayers are coming from memory rather than from the heart. And we partake of the Lord's Supper, and our minds are drifting. We give, but it's not sacrificially and joyfully. And then we hear some preaching and we hope he gets done on time. And the bad part about that is we leave thinking we have worshipped. We have missed the main event. And that is heartfelt praise. It's possible to be in God's house, among God's people, and miss the main event event. It kind of reminds me of the situation when Jesus was riding on a donkey going into Jerusalem. It is called the triumphal entry. And the disciples were so excited that the Messiah had come, the soon-to-be king would be crowned. And the Bible says that the multitude of disciples 
were praising God joyfully for all the miracles which they had seen. They were praising for what they had seen Jesus do. It kind of reminds me of a political convention when the party is about to present their nominee to be president. You know, there's all this boisterous excitement and they can't wait till this person is announced. That seemed to be the atmosphere of these disciples as Jesus was riding into Jerusalem. But there were some Pharisees there as well. And they came up to Jesus and he said, Jesus, you had better tell those people to calm down. And Jesus looks them in the face, and I'm imagining this scene. He says to them, if they shut up, these stones here will cry out. In essence, what he was saying to those Pharisees is, if you can't muster up a heartfelt emotion here, you're worse off than those stones. And sometimes we don't have that heartfelt emotion that we need in our praise to God. The Pharisees were not seeing the signs of the time. The Messiah had come, but they could not muster up an ounce of heartfelt emotion. But the disciples had seen Jesus at work, and his work was convincing proof that he was the Son of God, that he was the soon-to-be King. And when they realized that, their emotions overflowed. Praise is an expression of, of appreciation. An expression of appreciation for an attitude or an action by someone. To praise God is to call attention to His glory. To praise God means to exalt, to extol, to, to glorify our God in heaven. And folks, praise is the correct response for what God means to us. Paul said he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Praise is the appropriate response for what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. And so how do we get there? How do we get to a heartfelt praise as did those early disciples? We get there when we fully comprehend what God has done for us. Thomas Carlyle once said this, Adversity is hard on a man, but for one man who can stand prosperity, there are a hundred who can stand adversity. There's some wisdom in that. His point was in prosperity, people tend to live selfish lives and they lose. But in adversity, people learn to lean on God. And when they lean on God, they win. Adversity is part of praise. It is the foundation to our praise from the heart. And that's why James says, count it all joy when you encounter various trials. James, through the Holy Spirit, could see the value of adversity. Think about this. 
Praise is not likely to happen outside the context of adversity. Brother Jim Massey used to tell us back there in room number 10, I just came from there. He said, good news is not good news until you know the bad news. Maybe you've heard that before from him. And he went on to use an illustration to make his point. He said he was coming home from Africa and some brethren met him at the airport and they ran up to him and they said, Brother Massey, your girls are okay. And Brother Massey said, I always thought they were okay. What are you talking about? He said, oh, you haven't heard. He said, no, what? He said, they were in a terrible automobile accident, but they're okay. Jim said that then the good news was good news. My point is that praise is not true praise unless we feel the joy of deliverance over adversity. We need a strong sense of having been rescued from the depths of sin. We need a strong sense of how life would be if God wasn't with us. And that's why Paul reminded the Colossian Christians. In chapter 1, beginning with verse 11, he said, You have been delivered from the domain of darkness. He was saying, I want you to remember from where you have come. But you have been transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. There is power in remembering our desperate situation as opposed to where we are today all because of God. And the same is true of Jeremiah. Jeremiah's praise came out of a sense of delivery. In all of his adversity, he knew that God was with him every step of the way. And he also knew that he couldn't do it without him. God had called Jeremiah to preach to a rebellious Israelite nation. Jeremiah was doing exactly what he was told to do, but nothing seemed to work. He was arrested. He was beaten. He was locked in stocks. And I can just imagine that body being contorted in those locked stocks. He was distressed. Physically, emotionally, and professionally, he was discouraged, even though he was doing the will of God. And so in Jeremiah 20, what we find here are the highs and the lows of ministry. And the highs do not come without the lows. And so Jeremiah's story reveals three essentials that will move us through adversity and into praise. Number one, for praise to be real, we must accept that adversity is a part of ministry. We must be educated in the school of adversity for praise to be real. It's as if God throws us into the raging sea of life and he says to us, I'm going to require you to sink or swim. It's your choice. But all the time he's saying, I'll give you the ability to swim. I will show you how to swim. And it is my utmost desire that you learn how to swim. But in the end, it's your choice. 
And so how do we learn to swim then in the sea of adversity? Well, we learn to handle adversity in the strength and guidance of the Lord. You know, as preachers, as it's been well said this morning already, we might be doing all the right things, but getting poor results. We show up for everything. We work hard. We, we give it our all, but we see little or no good being done. You know, we study, we prepare, we, we visit, we preach publicly, we preach privately, but no one responds. And I think we'd all have to admit that's discouraging, as it was with Jeremiah. Discouragement is that which keeps us awake at night. It makes us walk the floors. And the temptation is to quit. We begin to say things and, and think things that we shouldn't be saying or thinking. And sometimes we even shake our fist at God and say, God, I did not sign up for this. That's where Jeremiah was. And if you've ever felt that way, you know what Jeremiah was dealing with. In this, we see Jeremiah, though, was a real person that spoke what was on his mind. He was real with his emotions. He was discouraged, and he told God how he felt. And as I'm reading this text, I'm thinking, Jeremiah, are you sure you want to be talking to God like that? Jeremiah, you can't shake your fist in God and say, you know, God, this is not right. My circumstances are not matching up with my righteous life. You know, I seem to remember another man by the name of Job who had a similar situation. But Jeremiah was real with his emotions. He was discouraged and he told God how he felt. And when I think about Jeremiah and how he felt, and then think about my own ministry sometimes and I'm thinking, don't I do the same thing? Maybe not to the same degree, but in some way, I do the same thing. And so I think Jeremiah's story is so relevant to preachers of all generations. It was relevant to me. He faithfully preached the truth, even when it seemed no one was listening. And he poured himself into ministry when, when no one was responding. He was God's prophet. He knew that, but he was also the people's laughingstock, and he didn't like it, and he told God how he felt. There's something else that's not really said in this particular text that really stood out to me. Maybe it's all conjecture, but did you notice in this text that God didn't reprove him? He didn't say, Jeremiah, I see your point, sorry. He didn't say that. He didn't say to Jeremiah, you know, if you feel that way, why don't you just leave? He didn't do that. God's ears were still open, and God was patient. Do you think it might have been that he knew that Jeremiah needed this for his own spiritual life? I think that must have had something to do with it. And that's why God is so patient with us, because he just wants us to keep on swimming through the discouraging time. And folks, it's praiseworthy to know that we serve a patient God. You know, I'm kind of hard-headed. 
some things just don't sink in as quickly with me as it does with some other folks. And I'm so thankful that God has been patient with me along the way. He knows that suffering is part of the experience. Paul told the Colossians in chapter 1 and verse 24, he said, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am completing what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. That lets us know that, yes, Christ suffered the most, he paid the ultimate price for our sins, but he also left some suffering to do. And it's going to be done by God's ministers. And so we must be comfortable with the fact that kingdom work is going to test our resolve. And so when we are in the pits, know it's part of the process. And true praise comes when we know that God is patient with us and he's going to make us winners in the end. The second point is, for praise to be real, we must be faithful to our calling. Verse 9. There's an old saying that you can't love God unless you love yourself. I suppose there's some truth to that statement. But it's also true that one cannot praise God unless you're able to praise yourself. Now, by that, I don't mean being puffed up or conceited. I'm talking about a sense of satisfaction with your ministry, a sense that you are being faithful to your calling. When you do that, there's a, a satisfaction that you gain from that, knowing you're doing your best. So we see this principle played out in Jeremiah's ministry because it had crossed his mind to give up, to throw in the towel. <clears throat> but something about Jeremiah and his conscience, I believe it was a God-shaped conscience that wouldn't let him do that. He was caught, though, in a paradox, it seems. He was miserable preaching because it caused him all kinds of problems. But he understood himself. When he looked within, he said, you know, I'd be more miserable not preaching. It's like fire in the bones. I have to purge myself of God's word or else I will die. He knew he had to be faithful to that calling. And we cannot feel good about ourselves unless we're faithful to what God has called us to do. All of us, we understand, are called by the gospel. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 14. But we're also called for the sake of the gospel. Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. And so one way or another, we are ministers of God's word. And preaching is one of those ways that we take the gospel into all the world. And I'm convinced some are called to preach. I've been asked by my denominational friends in a good way, how were you called to preach? Have you ever had to answer that question? You know, when I tried to explain it, I had a hard time because I really didn't have an answer. I could tell them what a calling was not. It doesn't come to us like it did to Jeremiah or one of the prophets. It doesn't come through a dream, a voice, or someone whispering in your ear. 
but we do have a calling. So how can we be sure we've been called to preach? Maybe you've struggled with that question like me. When I was struggling with that question, I went to one of my mentors, name was Doug, and I said, Doug, why did you decide to preach? He looked me straight in the eye and without hesitation, he said, because people are lost, Jerry. And I thought, Jerry, that's a pretty good answer. And so I had to ask myself, do I really care enough about people's souls to dedicate my life for preaching the gospel to them? Do I really care enough? And the answer had to be yes, or I needed to go find something else to do. And I could have. I did it for several years. But when I got to thinking about do I love souls enough to dedicate my life to them? The answer was yes. I feel a great sense of responsibility to help as many as I can get to heaven. And God has blessed me with a, a great group of people with which to work. They're so good to me, sometimes probably too good. But there are souls in that congregation that I've seen as little kids now getting married and have their own kids. Been there 17 years, and that is such a blessing. And I don't, I don't want to paint a, a discouraging picture that, that all of ministry is, is discouragement, because it's not. But it's definitely a part of it. And as long as I'm able, I have to be true to that calling in order to have self-respect. And I believe you do too. To feel good about yourself and your ministry, you have to be faithful to your calling. The last point and finally, for praise to be real, we must have a great sense of God's presence. Verse 11 says, But the Lord was, is with me like a dread champion. Therefore my persecutors will, be, will stumble and not prevail. They will be utterly ashamed because they have failed with an everlasting disgrace that will not be forgotten. When Jeremiah looked at his ministry and he looked at who was by his side, he realized that he was going to be a winner. He had a firm belief that God was his dread champion. And he was convicted that God would deal with his enemies, maybe not in his own time or Jeremiah's time, but in God's own good time and in his way. But in the end, he was going to be a winner. And brethren, when you know God is your champion, that is cause for praise. I grew up in California in a little town of about 10,000 and there were some pretty rough people there. The boys liked to fight a lot. And so when we would go out uh, doing our thing around town, I always liked to go with my big brother. He's only a year older than I am, but he was six foot four and about 300 pounds, and his arms were about as big as my legs. He could pretty much whip anybody in town, and everybody knew it. I want to go with him. <laughs> I felt safe. It gave me courage to have him by my side. And I love my brother, but I'd much rather have God as my champion than my brother. How about you?
And so we get to verse 13 in closing. I'm right. Uh, I, I'm starting to deal with the verse that you gave me, Glenn. Praise becomes the crescendo of living by faith, of working through courage with God, working through adversity with God by your side. And I'm convinced that true praise cannot exist outside the context of a real sense of victory over adversity. Then and only then can we fully appreciate what God has done for us. And I believe that God works best through us when we are living that life of praise. People just see it in us and it's catchy. It truly is a spark or a fire that ignites the congregation. So let me say this in closing. Brethren, we've seen enough parades in our congregations. We need to see some heartfelt worship. And it begins with us. God bless the church. And God bless the Jeremiah's of today. Thank you.